Well, good morning, everybody. I hope everybody's having a blessed Sabbath day and that we all get a blessing from this great day that God has given for us. Um, I know there's a lot of people that have uh, different opinions on whether they like long sermons, short sermons. So I thought I'd just start off with a, a, a story about sermon lengths here. And um, this story, it's about a young pastor. You're actually going to hear two stories about young pastors today. But uh, this young pastor, he had give, got, was, received his first assignment, and he was to go to uh, Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, and start a church. So he goes out there. And he decides he's going to have an evangelistic series right away. So he does all the publicity that he needs, and he does everything. He gets the spot where he needs to be. He does everything he needs. The first night he goes there, one person shows up. He's pretty disappointed. He walks up to the guy, and he said, he said well, you're the only one here. Do you, do you want me to go through with it? And... Uh, the fellow said, you know, I'm just an old cowpoke, but I know when I load up the truck to go feed the cows, if one of them shows up, I still feed her. So he says, all right, we'll go ahead. So he, he, gets, he delivers his message and he speaks for an hour and a half. And he gets done, and he, he's really curious what the guy has to say. He goes up and talks to him, and he said, well, what did you think? He said, well, I'm an old cowpoke. But I know if I go out to feed the cows, I load up the truck and go out there, and only one cow shows up, I don't feed her the whole load. (laughs) Well, today you're going to get the whole load from what I got. That's the bad news for those of you who like short sermons. The good news is I don't load my truck as much as some people that come up here, so... Um, the topic for today's sermon is kind of comes from studying the quarterly last fall and, and about the background characters. So I just want to start off just with a brief prayer, then we can get going here. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for all the lessons that you've got for us in the Bible. Let us learn from them and apply them to our lives and how we need to. And we thank you, Lord, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, some of the characters that, that we learned about last, last fall were very interesting. And we learned in 1 Samuel 1 about, about Hannah, how she had kept her promise. You know, Hannah was a lady that wasn't able to have children, and she was, that was a big thing back then. It really was disappointing to her, and it stressed her faith, but she kept her faith. She ended up making this promise with God that if he would give her a child, she would give him back to God. Well, she did end up having a child. And she did just exactly what she said she would do. She kept her promise. And that child ended up being the great prophet Samuel. Well, not only was she blessed from that, she was also blessed that she was able to have several more children after that. Um, We learned about Caleb in Numbers 13 and 14. When the 12 spies went into the promised land, 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it. They're too strong. But Joshua and Caleb... Joshua is the one who gets the most attention. He's got the book in the Bible. But Caleb was, was also there, and he was just as, just as strong and just as sure that God would, would provide for them. And because of that, he was one of only the two adults at that time that was able to enter the promised land. Uh, 
We learned in 2 Samuel 11 about the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. How, how after David and Bathsheba had the affair, David tries to cover it up by blaming it on Uriah or, or getting Uriah to come back and so he could convince him that it was his child. But Uriah didn't want the special treatment. Um, the, real, the real lesson we can learn from that story is also a lesson probably many of you golfers know. I don't know how many of you golf here, but when you're sitting on the tee and you, and you knock it deep into the woods, you go out, you look for that ball, and you find it, and you got this little opening, and you think, I can hit it out of there. I'm not sure. That's, that's what I usually do. Instead of taking my drop, my penalty, where I shouldn't play it from there, I usually try and hit it out of the woods. You know what? You usually get in more trouble. <laughs> I'm not, that's exactly what David should have done. He should have taken his drop, taken his penalty, and went on. But he, he tried to cover things up, and things got worse and worse. But the real, the real person in the backgrounds that I really enjoyed the most probably was Caleb. Excuse me, was Jonathan. We, we found it, find about him in 1 Samuel 14 and 18 through 20. Actually, I think he's one of the great background characters in the Bible. He's, he's a guy who put away his pride. See, he turned his back on what the world thought was greatness, and he looked, to, looked towards what God thought was great. He was willing to be a true friend, and, and he played second fiddle to a much younger man. Now, the great conductor, Leonard Bernstein, when asked, well, what is the toughest position to fill? He, he would say, second fiddle. Because at that level, everybody wants to be first. But if you don't have people that are willing to play the background music to fill in, it just doesn't sound as good. And we kind of have that same situation here in the church. You know, we're just having nomination committees, and not everybody's going to get what they want out of the nomination committee, but everything's important. If we don't have people to fill all the positions, this church is not going to run as good. Um... Jonathan understood that we can work through our circumstances, and he didn't blame his father for turning from God and keeping him off the throne. He accepted it, and he moved forward, and he gave strong support to David, and he looked out for what was good for everyone, not himself. Jonathan put aside his pride, and what we're going to look at today is what, what the Bible, how the Bible treats pride. There's nothing more disastrous to God than self-conceit. The aim of pride is to put self up on the throne and not God. Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. Another young pastor story here. This young pastor had gotten himself to quite a reputation as a good speaker. He would, more and more people were coming, he was getting big crowds, and he was starting to get a little proud of himself. One day at the end of service, he's standing in the back shaking everybody's hand, and Mrs. Smith walks up to him and says, said, I think you're becoming one of the greatest speakers of this generation. Wow. His pride went up even higher. At the end of the day, after he had shaken everybody's hand, he walks, in the, walks to his car where his wife and children are waiting, climbs in, squeezes his big head into the car, 
starts driving home. And on the way, he starts talking to his wife. And he said, you know, Mrs. Smith thinks I'm one of the greatest speakers of this generation. Nothing. She didn't say a word. A little while longer, he said, I just wonder how many great speakers there are in this generation. Well, then his wife did respond. She said, one less than you think, honey. <laughs> so just what does the Bible say about pride? I'm going to read you a couple of texts here and what, and what, it, what it says. In Psalm 119.21, you rebuke the proud, the cursed who stray from your commandments. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.8, pride goes before destruction. Our, our text for today, Habakkuk 2.4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. And a couple from the New Testament, Luke 18.14, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In Galatians 6.3, For if anyone thinks himself something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There are many, many others. That's just a, just a touching it's, it's pretty clear what God thinks of excessive pride. We're just going to take a quick brief tour through a couple guys in the Bible who showed excessive pride. And um, first one we're going to look at is in Exodus 5.1.2. We got the story of Moses and Aaron when they went to visit Pharaoh. Basically, what, these, what they said in a nutshell, they went to talk to Pharaoh and they told him, the Lord says, let thy people go. And Pharaoh's arrogant response was, who is the Lord that I should hear his voice? Well, we all know what followed there, what his fate ended up being, plagues and death in the Red Sea. In 2 Kings 5, 9 through 11, Naaman, the Syrian commander, went to visit Elisha the prophet. That's with an S, Elisha. Because Naaman had contracted leprosy. Well, Elisha sends out a messenger when he arrives and tells him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. Naaman becomes furious. He thinks he should have at least come out and waved his hand over where my leprosy was. And aren't there better rivers in, the, in Syria than that old Jordan River? Well... He was just wild, and his pride was, was preventing him from seeing that it was just a simple procedure, and he could have been healed. It wasn't until some of his uh, uh, partners there convinced him that, hey, it's really a simple thing what he's asking you to do. Why don't you do it? It's pride that was getting, getting in his way. In Daniel 4, we see how Daniel... This is Daniel's kind of a second interpretation of one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that this great tree was going to come up, grow up, and then it was going to get chopped down. And Daniel interpreted that for him, told him that it's going to be a humbling dream, that you were going to fall down and you were become to become a beast, like a beast in the field. Well, in verse 29 in Daniel 4, we see how 
Nebuchadnezzar is walking in the royal palace. And it's stated in verse 30 that he said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While those words were still in his mouth, the words from heaven came, Thy kingdom has departed from you. That very hour, he was driven into the field and he lived like a beast. Another interesting example of pride in the Bible is found, many of you know this one, in, in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. And it's the story of Lucifer. And then this one I'm going to read. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. For you weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And God, that's what Satan or, or Lucifer was claiming, that he was going to become awful great. But God's response to him was, you shall be brought down like Shoal to the lowest depths of the pit. Now, that story basically tells us Lucifer's plan and God's response to it. If, if, just a question for you. If pride had such an effect on Lucifer that it could change an angel into the devil, do you think he might use it against us? Just how does Satan do his work against us? Uh, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 gives us a glimpse of, glimpse of how he's working there. In verse 16 it says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. See, Paul is encouraging us there to walk in the spirit. But we can see in verse 17 that the flesh lusts against the spirit. Satan is just trying and trying to get us to feed the flesh and to deny the spirit. He tries to get, up, get us to build our egos up to dangerous levels. If we look at God's laws, feeding the flesh has caused man to break every single one of them. Egotism leads us to consider everything in relation to self rather than in relation to God and the welfare of his people. When we put ourselves on the throne, that is where the problem comes in. Self-confidence with God on the throne, doing things for his glory, that's perfectly okay. But doing things for self-glorification, that's where it becomes not okay. This week in the quarterly, we kind of studied about low self-esteem, kind of the, the opposite thing. Well, if you kind of put it on a line here, you got low self-esteem and high self-esteem, pride. Satan wants us to get in one of those camps. Well, we've got to get in that middle ground where we're, we're glorifying God, not ourselves, and not being so beaten down that we're afraid to do anything. 
Well, how do we know if pride is getting in our way? Let's turn to uh, 2 Samuel, and we're going to look at... uh, Second Samuel 6, and it's the uh, 16 and 17 and 20 and 21. And uh, this is uh, the story of David and, and Saul's daughter. And I'm going to say Michal. Is that right? Michael? Michal? Michael. Okay, it's Michael. Okay. I forgot to ask you before, Paul, how to pronounce that one. Um, it says, Now the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, to meet David, and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. See, David is basically telling Michael, I'm not concerned with what you thought of this matter. I'm only concerned with praising and glorifying God. That's where we need to be. The world out there wants us to be concerned with self and self-gratification. But David was concerned in this case with glorifying God. And that's, that's exactly where we need to be. In Matthew 16, 26, or 20, Matthew 16, 24 through 26, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he basically is telling them there, if anyone desires to come after me, he needs to deny himself and take up the cross. For whoever desires to lose, save this life will lose it, but whoever loses this life for my sake will find it. He's essentially telling them, if pride is causing you to put yourself on the throne, you must lose it. Matthew tells us again in 6.33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our aim needs to be to honor God and not our selfish desires. If we realize that pride is getting in our way, how do we stop? Well, I think the nearer we come to, the closer we come to God, the more completely we become humbled and subdued. In Job 42, 5 and 6, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Daniel 10.8, after seeing the great vision, Daniel states how there is no strength left in him, how his vigor has been turned to frailty, how he was able to retain no strength. 
In chapter 9 of Acts, we see how the great Pharisee Saul is driven down to the ground when he had an encounter with Christ. Now these three examples I just given you may be of men who God had called for great things. But he's also calling each and every one of us to do things for him. And we all can certainly draw closer to God. But how do we do that? Well, I think it's really just a couple of simple things that, that, that we need to do. First of all, we have to study his word. And that simply takes willingness and dedication. There's really nothing else to it. If we, if we dedicate ourselves to study his word, we'll do it on a regular basis and we'll get a blessing out of it. We need to humbly pray. Not just repeat things that we may have learned when we were young and don't really have much meaning to us, but we need to pray from the heart and, and be humble about it. After Solomon had dedicated the temple and praised God, God appeared to him and said in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear, hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If we humbly pray, God can heal what is separating us from him, even if that is pride. The third thing, <clears throat> the third thing we can do is serving God through others. Now, we could have a great speaker up here every week like, like uh, Doug Batchelor, you know, somebody of that caliber, and we might get a lot of people here. But they're not going to be, want to become one of us, want to see, join us and, and, and do the work with us unless they see how much we care, how much we're concerned about others. In my opinion, God's plan for us serving others can be summed up in two words. The first word comes from Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. That very first word, go, that's an action word. Do something. The second one comes from Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, where he's telling them of the, the, the second commandment is to love thy neighbors as thyself. That very first word there, love. We are to go and love our neighbors, love our, our co-workers, you know, people who live, well, not even just our neighbors, everyone around us, we are to... We are to be God's witnesses. <clears throat> There's a story about a famous baseball player named Lou Gehrig that I think helps illustrate this, this last one. In 1937, Lou Gehrig was a star first baseman of the New York Yankees. And he was, the Yankees were playing in Chicago. And Lou Gehrig was a man who was concerned with others and put his, bore his faith on the outside so people could see it. He was asked to go to the children's hospital and visit a young boy named Tim 
who was suffering from polio. Well, Tim was refusing to do his exercises, and they thought maybe if his hero, Lou Gehrig, would come to visit him, this would maybe inspire him. Lou tried to talk to him, but Tim was, Tim was reluctant. He did not, wanna, did not wanna do it. Finally, Tim stated, if you hit a home run for me today, I will do those exercises. Well, Lou agreed to this, but on the way to the ballpark, he kept thinking, what did I do? If I don't hit a home run, he's never gonna try. And baseball players don't hit home runs, every, even the good ones, they don't hit home runs every day. So he was very disappointed that in himself that he agreed to that. Well, Lou didn't hit a home run that day, but he hit two of them. Two years later, he was dying from the dreaded disease that bears his name, Lou Gehrig disease. On July 4th, 1939, there was a special, special day, Lou Gehrig's day at Yankee Stadium. 80,000 people crammed in the Yankee Stadium, including the governor, the mayor, and many, many other dignitaries, all to pay tribute to Lou Gehrig. When the mic was turned over to Lou, out from the dugout walks Tim. He throws down his crutches and walks up and hugs Lou. At that moment, Lou said probably the most famous words he's ever said. When he said, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. It wasn't because they were all there to pay him tribute. It was because he had put his pride aside and went and helped someone, a younger person that needed help. And he's seen that effect on that person. And because of that, he considered himself to be the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Chances are none of us will ever be as famous as Lou Gehrig. But we still have opportunities to serve God and others. If we can just get rid of the things that are causing us to be afraid to act or too proud to act, God can use us. We need to pry ourselves off the throne. Many times our lives don't end up how we had them planned out in our minds. But we need to be willing to let God have thine own way. We need to be willing to let him take control, to not let things like pride get in our way and prevent us from doing God's will. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this Sabbath day. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for the ability you've given us to serve you. Let us see what needs to be done so that we can humbly serve you, both here in this community, in this state, and throughout the world. And we just ask a special blessing on the rest of this Sabbath day, Lord, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.